Well, good morning. If you're counting like I am, Christmas is 12 mornings away. All right, that's a really, I know everybody's geared up about it. And I've, I've always thought that you can tell a lot about a family if you were to peer into their living room on Christmas morning. And it'd be a serious misunderstatement or a serious understatement to say that Christmas in the Sharp household when I was a kid was different than Christmas in the Lucia household where my wife grew up. Andrea is half Italian, but if you were to look into her window, you would think Christmas morning was full on Italian with every stereotype that you can imagine. There were as many conversations going on in that house as there were people. People talking at the same time to everybody with increasing decibel levels as every gift was opened up, paper was thrown away, boxes were ripped open, you were losing the presence with all the packages all around. Everything was done simultaneously. It was literally chaos in that house. And it was literally nothing like Christmas in the Sharp household. Andrew's Italian, I am Norwegian and Dutch. And so if you know any stereotypes about those cultures, you know a little bit about what Christmas looked like in my house. All four of us kids were gathered around the Christmas tree. My mom was with us and my dad was at the Christmas tree and he would go over and take one gift and give it to my mom and we would all look and, ex- and be excited as my mom opened this gift. Maybe it was our gift that he was given and we were excited for her. She was excited. Lots of thank yous were going around and then we bundled up all the paper, put it in a big black trash bag and then my dad went over and picked up another gift and gave it to one of my siblings. And that process continued until all the gifts were done. And then what we did is we wrapped up all the paper and put it in a trash bag and took it to the trash can. And all our gifts were organized under the tree. And that was Christmas morning. (laughs) Very, very different experiences. But there were a lot of similarities as well. There was just as much joy in the Norwegian household as there was in the Italian one. It just manifested itself differently. And there was also something similar as well. And this is what our culture has devolved to, sadly, is that Christmas has become about giving and getting. Now, we do experience that as believers on Christmas morning. That's a good thing. We image God with that. But we have stripped away all the other stuff and it's been just about giving and getting in our culture. Well, this morning, we're going to go into 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about giving or sacrificing, giving and getting. And so what I would like to do is something we don't normally do. Uh, Since it's one verse, I'm going to read four different translations of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. And I'm doing that to emphasize the message, but also to, to point out a distinction in one of the translations. And I think it's going to be important for us as we go through the message. So first, the one that most of us are familiar with, the ESV. I think Dane is going to put them all up there for us. First one, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Next, J.B. Phillips. If I dispose of all that I possess... Even if I give my own body to be burned, but have no love, I achieve precisely nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, 
I've gotten nowhere. And lastly, NIV, and this is the one that's slightly different from the previous three. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for this Advent season, a time where we are able to intensely gaze at what you have done for us, Lord. It strips away all that is unimportant and we, and we see your glory and your sacrifices and your love for us. And I pray that this morning, this passage, your spirit would awaken in us greater love for you, Lord, that we might image you and enjoy you now and forever. And we pray it in your name, amen. Well, as Jason's preached the last couple weeks, we've seen how Paul has strategically placed chapter 13 right in between 12 and 14 for an intended purpose. In correcting the Corinthian church, which he loved, he's reminding them that love itself must course through all their lives. Everything they do, everything they say, everything they believe must be marked by love. And he's, he mentions this even in chapter 15 later on, that, that the sacrifices of Christ out of love is the foundation and the motivation for all that they do. Now, this church has many gifts, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and they're each to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. Yet if they're practiced without love, as we just heard, they mean nothing. Well, this morning's verse, verse 3, continues the train of thought from the previous two with a slight adjustment. Whereas verses 1 and 2 focused on our spiritual activity, this verse focuses on more physical aspects. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body, an end game is the same. Loveless physical activity has the same empty result as loveless spiritual activity. Without love, tongues were a cacophony of senseless noise. Without love, prophecy and faith made ourselves nothing. And the same with giving away and delivering up ourselves. Without love, there is no benefit. So anything we do, spiritual or physical, without love, results in a big zero goose egg. So one verse, two very succinct points for us to take away from this. First, Sacrifice without love gets you nothing. Second point, sacrifice with love gets you everything. And as we consider the relationships between sacrifices, getting, and giving, my prayer is this, my hope is this, throughout Advent, that the love that came down at Christmas for us will awaken in us a greater love for God and one another. So first, what does sacrifice without love getting nothing means? Well, like Jesus, Paul often uses extreme examples to get our attention. And here he's using some pretty extreme examples. First, giving away all of our stuff, things, money. And secondly, giving away our actual selves completely. Let's focus on the first concept of sacrifice, giving away everything that we own. 
Now, it would seem to me that someone who gives away absolutely everything they own, think about that, that's an extreme example, give away everything you own, they should be in what I would call the Philanthropy Hall of Fame, right? And there's actually an organization, this is crazy, called the Philanthropy Roundtable. And it's actually pretty cool. Their mission is to document, motivate, and provide guidance for those people who want to give away their money. And in doing so, they've compiled a list of the criteria required to get on the Philanthropy Hall of Fame. Here are the three criteria. First, it has to be personal giving. You cannot give away what's not yours. <laughs> Secondly, you've got to be alive. Your great-grandchildren can't give away something, and you get credit for it. And lastly, how much did you give, and did it accomplish its intended purposes? That's their criteria. What is it? that God looks at when he evaluates our philanthropy. I think he looks at the first two. We only get credit for what we've given away. That's ours. We can't give away somebody else's stuff. We got to do it when we're alive. But he would substitute something different for the third criteria. Paul reminds us that love is a necessary ingredient to get on God's philanthropy hall of fame. Now, Paul is not really implying, because he's using extremities, that we should give away everything. He's simply trying to make a point about loveless giving and its implications. Imagine what it would feel like if you really did sell everything you had, turned it into cash, withdrew everything you had out of the bank, and distributed it to 100 different people. And you didn't get a single thank you. That would be devastating. You'd think, what a waste. What did I just do all that for? At the time Paul was writing, he was talking about a specific kind of giving. Giving to the poor, as we heard in two of the translations. Usually it was food or clothing or money, or money to buy food or clothing, anything that the poor needed to survive. We do the same thing now. We've done it here at this church. Food and clothing, we want, I want to, it was such a joy this year to see that happen in this church. I hope that, that our opportunities increase to be able to express generosity to the poor. But often in 21st century America, when we think about giving in any way, it's money. That's, that's our economy. What are some of the non-loving motives that we can have when we give? I can share with you a few that affect me, that I notice in me. Guilt. <clears throat> you go into a coffee shop or any retail section now, and you give them your credit card, and they swivel that little screen around. 0%, 10%, 20% custom. Then you've got to sign your name. And that clerk or barista is looking at you while you're signing your name, and I'm going, oh, I better get something here. feel guilt. What about what other people think about us? What the Bible calls fear of man. I feel this wrongly when my neighbors drop in envelopes to say, give to this my favorite charity. That's a good thing to do. We, should, we do it. We should do it. But I think, oh, I want them to like me. And so I better give something so maybe I have an opportunity for the gospel later on. That's not love. Peer pressure. Tuesday after Thanksgiving, Giving Tuesday. My email is inundated with organizations that I already give to. <laughs> Maybe I don't give to. Hey, give something. Here's, this is a good need. Do it. They're not putting pressure on me, but I'm feeling it. 
Maybe it's to get treated well. Postman, sanitation worker. I'm probably the only one here, newspaper delivery person, all right? We get a Christmas card, or we get an envelope, not a Christmas card, we get an envelope, Merry Christmas. There's, I don't want my paper to be soaking wet for the next month, all right, so I'm going to give something. There could even be, sadly, a financial motive. Well, you know what? If I give a little bit more, I'm going to get a tax write-off. It's not surprising that different emotions rise up within us when those are our motivations. Those type of motivations result in resentment, irritability, even anger. And that's what God sees in me when that's the response that I have. No love, that's what he's seen. He's seen bitterness and anger. Now, to be honest, in our frailty, and our humanity, our motives are never, ever pure. They're always mixed. So God's not looking for perfection when we give, but he does know my heart. He sees what's really motivating us. Are we primarily characterized and motivated out of love? Now, whenever we detect any of these other non-loving responses, a little bell should go off in our head, in our heart. Ding, 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 ding. Warning, lack of love detected. Got to do something. Because if love is our primary motivation in giving, we should experience joy. That should be the natural outflow of giving that's motivated by love. Not immediately. It's hard to write that check, make that EFT transaction. But in my experience, and I would, I would wager for all of you, when we give out a joy, or when we give out a love, there's joy that follows. You see, love for others can free us to give more sacrificially than we ever thought possible. Interesting. The word philanthropy today means to, to give of our time and our talents and our treasure to make life better for other people. That's what it means. 500 years before the first Christmas is when the word philanthropy was first used. You know what it meant? Love of humanity. How interesting. Love of humanity was the root of philanthropy. So, so philanthropy is not, first and foremost, an action, but it's a motivation. And with that definition, I believe it's accurate to say that the greatest philanthropist, the philanthropist of philanthropists the world has ever known, was born 2,000 years ago in the squalor of a barred stable. Jesus, the author and creator of life, of everything that we think we own, gave up everything. He left his throne to descend into his creation. And what was his motivation? It was love. Nothing else motivated him. Nothing that we did, nothing, no one that we are, nothing that we have. It was love that motivated him to give it all up. And when we truly grasp, I really believe this, when we truly grasp and understand and comprehend the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and the love of Christ for us, we're going to be free to give like we've never given before. And as Christians, we should stand out for generous, joyful giving. That should mark us. When opportunities arise to give, either here at the church or broadly in the community, and that little ding, 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 ding goes off, the answer is not to withhold our giving. It's not to just give and not do the humbling heart work necessary to figure out why that bell's going off. The answer's simple. We repent 
ask God to forgive us that we might be transformed once again into the image of Christ and gain rather than get nothing. And that's interesting. When I was, actually when I was preparing this part of the message on Friday, I got a text from a BGC partner. And they were concerned about BGC partners who were negatively affected by what happened out of Harrisburg on Thursday with small businesses being shut down. And it was on their heart to bless BGC partners. Dave, is there somebody who's been seriously affected by what happened on Thursday? We want to help them. Significantly, we want to help them. We want them to know the love of Christ. He said, is there anybody? Man, this is, what, this is what makes pastoring a joy, you guys. There's many things that make pastoring a joy, but there's nothing like this. When I see the body of Christ caring for the body of Christ, Dave, is there anybody that, can, that we can help? I said, yeah, I think there is. And so I have the joy of receiving from this BGC partner and blessing on their behalf for the glory of God another BGC partner. What wonderful opportunities, what wonderful expression of the grace of God. And there are many, I know there are many here at Brandywine Grace who have done exactly the same thing. Well done. Well done for you giving out of the abundance that Christ has given you. Thank you for imaging the love of Christ to you and letting it manifest, manifest in practical ways right here at Brandywine Grace. May they be an inspiration for the rest of us. May the love that came down at Christmas for us awaken in us a love for God and one another. So that's the first form of sacrificial giving, giving away our stuff and our money. Second is this. Paul speaks of giving of our very selves, sacrificing our bodies. If I give over my body to be burned, or as the NIV said, give over my body to hardship, that I may boast. Why two pretty different translations here? Theologians differ as to the reason why. The primary reason is that the words boast and burn in the Greek are identical, except for two little letters. Except for two little letters. A, a real quick side note, doesn't mean you can't trust your Bibles, guys. You can trust your Bibles, all right? It's the original Greek manuscripts that were inerrant and infallible. Translations are not inerrant and infallible. But when the ESV and others translate it as give over my body to be burned, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I say, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what extreme sacrifice looks like. Go into the stake to be burned, and there's lots of examples of that in history. We just see that that's a demonstration of sold-out faith. Long history of Christians at the stake. Romans used to line their highways with sticks and Christians on them lit as torches. But there's a problem with that. You see, that type of torture against Christians by the Romans didn't really happen much until way after Paul was dead, way after this letter was written. That's why many commentators, like the NIV translation, Render it giving over my body to hardship that I may boast. And there's valid historical reason for that as well. 
One way at that time to give one's body over physically was to sell yourself into slavery, to pay someone's debt, or to take the place in prison of someone else. There's actually a physical exchange of the bodies. That's why they use this. Regardless of which of these is accurate, though, all commentators, this is why we can trust our Bibles, all commentators agree on Paul's point. Even if we do the most unselfish, unimaginable imaginable act, becoming a martyr, voluntarily selling our bodies into slavery, we get nothing if love is not at the root. During, I think most of you know I'm a big World War II fan, but during the Pacific Campaign, Admiral Richard Antrim was captured by the Japanese. He was a courageous man. What a story. Highly decorated. And while in a POW camp, he witnessed a fellow soldier being brutally and unjustly beaten by a Japanese guard. Antrim, as a leader, a man of character, could not stand it any longer. So he interrupted the beating, ran up, and volunteered to take the beating. Wow. In the place of the soldier, the Japanese were astounded. What would cause a man to do this? They, did, they had no place for it. And for this, Antrim remains the only person ever awarded the Medal of Honor for an act of valor performed in a POW camp. Now, I can't prove it. I tried, but I can't. I believe that Admiral Antrim was an inspiration for a single scene in a movie called To End All Wars. You may have heard this example before, but I think it's really appropriate for what we're studying today. There was a POW camp in Southeast Asia. The soldiers there, mostly British, were tasked with building the Burmese Railroad, 250 miles, so that the Japanese could invade India. And in the movie, it's reported to a Japanese officer that a shovel is missing from the camp. And all the prisoners lined up. Attention, all prisoners. There's a shovel missing from the tool shed. The one who has taken the shovel, return it now. Then you see dozens of soldiers run up to the prisoners and raise their rifles. If the shovel is not returned, the entire camp will suffer punishment. There's a long delay as the officer stares at the prisoners waiting and waiting and waiting. And then a soldier steps out of line, says nothing, walks up, and the officer takes another shovel and begins beating him mercilessly. And after the officer has finished the beating, a voice rises from across the camp yard. The shovel! It was found. The fellow prisoners then silently gather around the now paralyzed soldier, and the narrator comes in, actually one of the other prisoners. What would compel a man who was once so selfish to sacrifice himself for others? You see, the prisoner who stepped forward used to be the most selfish man in the entire camp. He developed a black market that, that, that lined his own pockets at the expense of every other suffering prisoner there. But something changed in him. They don't actually tell you in the movie. You have to watch it. Be careful. It's a war movie. There's a lot of violence. There's language. But it is the most, one of the most gospel-centered movies I've ever seen. 
By sacrificially stepping forward, this prisoner caused others to stand up and ask, what would compel a man who was once so selfish to sacrifice himself for others? That begs the question for me and for all of us. What? Me, a selfish man. What would compel me to sacrifice myself for others? It's not likely that any of us here watching online will have the opportunity to sacrifice our physical bodies the way Admiral Antrim did. But in my dreams, maybe some of you too have have thought of that. I don't think, though, a day goes by without every one of us having many, 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 many opportunities to sacrifice ourselves for the love of others. Now, sometimes we're unwilling to sacrifice in any way whatsoever, kind of like the prisoner before he was changed, so selfish in the moment that we don't even do the right thing, let alone having the right motive behind what we do. Here in verse 3, though, Paul's addressing a different concern for his Corinthian brothers and sisters. He's pulling back the veil on those times when we really know the right thing to do, and guess what? By the grace of God, we do it. Actually, do the right thing. But often our deeds mask our true motives. We're sometimes totally blind to our selfishness because we're enamored with ourselves. Our yeses and smiles belie the less godly origins of why we're doing what we're doing. And so we fall short of anything that profits. We achieve precisely nothing. Our primary motive at those times is not love of others, but love of moi. That is why the NIV uses the translation, if I give over my body to hardship, that I may boast. Paul's saying, if I sacrifice and then boast in my sacrificing, you've wasted your time. You get nothing. You know, humility is something that Christians should be marked by. It's what was most attractive, by Je- attractive about Jesus. He was gentle and lowly of heart. And we should pray, because we need to, we should pray for the grace for more and more genuine humility. At the same time, we must be on guard to the fact that humility is a deceptively attractive attribute. The highest compliment you can pay someone, it says, is to tell them that they're humble. And it's because of this, because humility is so highly regarded, especially in Christian circles, it can be a landmine for us. You ever done something, made a sacrifice for someone with the inner desire that they recognize it and they're going to thank you and they're going to think better of you? (laughs) Rhetorical question. There's not a person here, me included, that hasn't done that. We just hope they take notice of our humility and think better of us. False humility is unsustainable, and it's not attractive, and it's usually pretty evident. Kind of like the humble brag. These are exaggerations, but that's the best cake I have ever had. It's amazing. You did a wonderful job. (laughs) Really? I almost didn't bring it. I really just didn't do anything right. I can't believe it's even edible. (laughs) Hey, you got an A. I am so proud of you. Congratulations. Oh, man. I felt horrible during the test. I can't believe the teacher gave me that grade. I stayed up all night. I almost fell asleep during the exam. It's, it's, I don't believe it. We've all done those things, right? We deflect praise into the ether 
instead of to the one who deserves it, God. Inwardly, we crave to be recognized and then quickly minimize the praise or the gratitude. The right response is simple. Say thank you. Thank God for the gifts he's given you and pray for more opportunities to express his love to other people. True humility doesn't seek its satisfaction in the recognition of others. But you know what's even more unsettling, you guys? Boasting is a landmine, not just in our relationships with one another, horizontally, but in our relationship vertically with God. In a piercingly insightful way that only C.S. Lewis can do. In Screwtape Letters, he presents the subtle truth that, as J.I. Packer said, even our best deeds are shot through with sin. If you know how Screwtape is written, it's a series of letters from a devil, Uncle Screwtape, to his protege junior devil named Wormwood, giving him counsel on how to tempt Christians. This is, this is one segment, one letter. The uncle speaking to the junior devil. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient, Christian, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to this fact? <laughs> All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the right moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection by Jove. I'm being humble. <laughs> and almost immediately, pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. Man, was C.S. Lewis insightful? If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt. And so on, and so on, through as many stages as you please. The wheel keeps turning. The enemy is a prowling lion and will turn the highest of Christian virtues inside out, upside down, until humility morphs into the basest and most unattractive of attributes. So what do we do? What's the way out of our inclination to make loveless sacrifices of ourselves? Try harder at being humble? Good luck. The answer is here is the same as how to deal with our loveless sacrifices of money. We repent, come once again before God's throne of grace and pray for him to cleanse us, purify us, and make our motives more loving. And the great news, you guys, the great news is that if you're in Jesus, you have the ability to do that. You have his spirit dwelling in you. You're a new creation. You have new desires. You're able now to offer pleasing sacrifices, not out of selfish motivation, but out of love for Jesus. That's my first point. Sacrifices, whether spiritual or physical, if offered without love, get us nothing. The second point's much briefer. It'll go faster. Brandon, you and the band can come, come on up, please. The second point I want to leave you with is this, that sacrifice with love gets you everything. Now, Paul doesn't exactly say this, but I do believe it's implicit. When Paul says that we get nothing with loveless sacrifice, again, he's exaggerating. It's not literally nothing. I hope you get lots of genuine smiles and thank yous on Christmas morning, but they won't last they don't have eternal value. 
What Paul's warning us of is that we gain nothing of lasting worth, no eternal value. And so that's why it makes sense to me to say that love, sacrifice with love, genuine love, is going to get you something. But I think it's more than something. I think it's actually everything you ever wanted. Sacrifice with love gets you everything. And one stanza, I've taken liberty to modify it slightly from a famous poem by C.T. Dodd, I think is fitting. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish love to leave and to God's holy love to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed Only what's done in love for Christ will last. Every good work, if not motivated by love for Christ, will eventually be consumed. It won't last the fire. So far be it from us to boast in anything except Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Sacrifices that are rooted in the love of Christ will withstand the judgment and gain for you what can never be taken away. Love Jesus now. Love others now with no regard for what's in it for you. Jesus reminded us of exactly the same thing in Matthew 19. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, your stuff, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life can't be taken away from you. In God's kingdom, giving only happens by losing. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. Sacrifice with love is the only way to true and lasting contentment and joy. Now, in and of ourselves, we're incapable of this kind of sacrifice. We know it ourselves. We're simply too selfish. But if we look with the eyes of faith into the manger of Christmas morning and behold the love that came down at Christmas for us, the love that sacrificed everything for us while we were sinners, I believe that the Spirit of God can awaken in us a genuine Christ-exalting love for God and others that will repel any of our own attempts or the attempts of the enemy to smuggle any of our own righteousness into our sacrifice. Paul said in his second letter to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. (laughs) Controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, we don't often think of Christmas morning this way, but Christmas is a celebration of sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for Christ to take on the form of flesh. It was a sacrifice to him become poor that we might become rich. It was a sacrifice for him to die. It was a sacrifice for him to die that we might live forever. So when you boil it all down, what matters most is not what we give to others. It's what we've gotten. From Jesus. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's lavished on us the riches of his grace. We are new creations with new desires. 
And why do you have any of this? The love of Christ. Jesus loves you. That song is, that kid's song is true. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. And my prayer for us, for each of you, this Advent season and throughout this year is that the love that came down at Christmas for you will awaken in you new desires to love God and one another in a way that brings you joy and Him glory. For His glory, let it be. Amen.